When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The road to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame opening in Cleveland was a long winding one, with more than a decade of lobbying and anticipation. Eventually, the museum opened its doors on the shores of Lake Erie in emphatic fashion. I was born by the river in a little tent. The concert for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at nearby Cleveland Municipal Stadium, featuring the likes of Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Al Green and the Pretenders, ushered in the era of Cleveland's greatest tourist attraction. Stunning exhibits and programs followed, but a year into the museum's existence, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was still looking for its signature event, remembers Bob Santelli, one of the Rock Hall's original curators and the museum's first director of education and public programs. It was crazy. Uh, I remember working 10, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, it was crazy, but it was it was really exciting because... You know, we're on the cuffs of something that had never been done before. Here we were, we were institutionalizing this great American music form, rock and roll. And the idea was, wasn't to just put, you know, stage outfits on mannequins and have people come and look at them. It was more about bringing context to this music and to the history of the music. And I took that very personally, and I thought it was very, very important. I thought I had the most important job at the museum at the time. And, uh, you know, I tried to keep that in my mind, that I had to come up with things that brought value to the institution and also gave it credibility. In 1996, Santelli and a small team would produce the first ever American Music Masters series, with the first honoree as Woody Guthrie. You're listening to CLE Rocks, the music podcast from the birthplace of rock and roll. I'm Troy L. Smith with Cleveland.com, and this is the story of how, with help from Guthrie's daughter, Nora, and artists like Bruce Springsteen and Pete Seeger, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame paid tribute to a folk icon while establishing a signature event that would last for 20 years. A native of Newark, New Jersey, Bob Santelli grew up with two main passions, surfing and music. Santelli would turn his love of music into a writing career that began at the Asbury Park Press in Aquarian Weekly before moving to California for college and earning writing gigs with major publications like Rolling Stone. While working with Rolling Stone, Santelli would connect with founder Jan Wenner, who would tap Santelli to be part of the core group of individuals to head to Cleveland and head the inception of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum. But the move wasn't without criticism. Prior to coming to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I was a music journalist, a music critic, and a lot of a lot of my colleagues, you know, just poo-pooed the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Bob Criscow, I remember, you know, who was on my PhD committee, he looked down upon it, says it'll destroy rock and roll and um, others, you know, felt the same way. You can't institutionalize something that comes from the streets. And and uh, I felt very, very different about that. 
and really set out to prove it through education and, and the public programs. Santelli began plotting the museum's first big event, following the concert for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His plan was to honor the roots of rock, artists who preceded but laid the groundwork for the development of rock and roll. When it came time to choose the first artist to honor, Santelli tapped into familiar territory. While working as a freelance writer in New Jersey, Santelli began working with Woody Guthrie's former manager, Harold Leventhal, on a project curating the folk icon's old artwork and papers for a book. The material Santelli collected would go on to become a key component of the Woody Guthrie Archives and Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, both run by Guthrie's daughter, Nora. About 10 years prior to me moving to Cleveland, uh, I had worked with the Guthrie family and uh, and Dave Marsh, the, the music critic Dave Marsh. I lived in New Jersey. I was without a book contract for that particular summer. And so there was no real Woody Guthrie archives to speak of back then, but all his papers and memoirs and everything like that in boxes, cardboard boxes in the office of Harold Leventhal, who was Pete Seeger's manager. Uh, it was in Midtown Manhattan. And he also was basically the overseer of the Guthrie estate. And my job was basically to um, make some semblance, put that in order, some see what was there essentially for a book that would come out of Woody Guthrie's original writings that was um, done by Harold Leventhal and Dave Marsh. So my relationship with the with the archives, Woody Guthrie archives, went back all the way to the mid-1980s. And Nora Guthrie and I had known each other, and I had always been a huge Guthrie fan since I was a kid uh, when I first discovered Bob Dylan and realized that the song to Woody that he wrote on his very first album was to Woody Guthrie. I'm out here a thousand miles from my home Walking a road, other men have gone down. 1996 was a big year for Nora Guthrie. Not only was it the first year the Woody Guthrie Archives collection was made available to the public, but Nora also had begun work on Mermaid Avenue, an album of previously unheard Woody Guthrie lyrics put to music, written and performed by British singer Billy Bragg and the American band Wilco. Oh, my little girl, you will you let me see Way over yonder where the wind blows free Nobody can see in our holler tree And there ain't nobody that can sing like me Ain't nobody that can sing like me It was a big year, so that's when it opened to the public. But I had already started working with Billy Bragg on the Mermaid Avenue albums. So, yeah, it was a lot of, I want to say I was younger then, too. I had a lot of energy. (laughs) Despite a loaded schedule, Nora Guthrie served as an integral part of the first American Music Masters, serving as co-producer. The plan called for a week of performances and educational programs devoted to Woody Guthrie, culminating with a tribute concert. Well, it was very exciting because we decided to be very creative with what we were doing because Woody is not so much a stage artist as a street artist. So we wanted to find a way of presenting the tribute in a way that would be accessible to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. 
So as opposed to just a tribute concert, we decided to come up with kind of a master plan weekend where there were just lots of things going on in different venues around town, plus the conference at the university, plus ending with the large tribute concert at Severance Hall. Also, there were so many different kinds of artists that relate to Woody's music, and, and I have letters and notes from so many different artists, everyone from Bob Dylan to John Lennon to uh, Soul Asylum to Chuck D. There are so many estuaries like of artists that are connected to Woody in one way or another over the years, so it's not just folk. So we had to also come up with a representation of all of that, all the different genres of styles of music, you know, so it wasn't just a folk concert. And, and there was also a cutting-edge aspect of Woody's writing, which was either political or cutting-edge in some way, uh, out, outside of the box. So we had to include those kind of artists. You know, there was like a big checklist, and the checklist included all these different genres, all these different kinds of artists that represented the past as well as the future. For the finale venue, Santelli chose Severance Hall, home of the Cleveland Orchestra. Then Plain Dealer music critic Michael Norman called the venue a surprising choice. For a rock and roll show to take place in Severance Hall was also kind of a surprise and a shock to some people's systems. I mean, you're talking about a city in which the classical music critic of the Plain Dealer back in the 60s was sent to review the Beatles and called them a bunch of noise. So now you're literally in the home of the Cleveland Orchestra paying tribute to Woody Guthrie. However, Santelli was on a mission to give the music masters credibility right from the start by choosing such a historic venue. I, I believed in the program not as a one-off, but as an annual event. And I knew I had to get it. It had to be credible. It had to have uh, respect. It had to have sophistication. And, and I had only been in Cleveland a year, but I knew like everybody else, that the most esteemed concert venue, concert hall in the city was Severance Hall, and it was the home of the esteemed Cleveland Orchestra. I mean, you can't get anything more respectful than that back in the mid-1990s. And so I said, you know, this is a folk show. We'll be, you don't have to worry about things in terms of, uh, you know, people going crazy, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't think, quite honestly, that I had a chance with the Severance people to, to convince them um, that this would be a good thing. We had alternative opportunities to go over to Tri-C. Um, we thought about Playhouse Square. And I was I was pretty adamant I held out for Severance because I, I knew when you say Severance in Cleveland, it automatically means respect, integrity, sophistication, art culture and i wanted american music masters to be have that same kind of um, reputation with the template for a week's worth of programs in place all that was left was getting artists for the tribute concert that would give the event the high profile cachet it needed the mid-1990s was a unique time for bruce springsteen for an artist who spent the bulk of his previous 20 years on the road, the boss had become relatively low-key. He was still active, temporarily reorganizing the E Street Band for a few new songs recorded for his first Greatest Hits album in 1995, and releasing his second folk album, The Ghost of Tom Joad, inspired by John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. He wasn't exactly in his tour, tour, tour mode at the time, right? It was, this is right before or around the Ghost of Tom Joad era, 
He wasn't really back with the E Street Band full-time. Uh, he was kind of a the mystery guy, you know, like uh, he was a superstar because of the he's Springsteen, but he hadn't been uh, really out there and in the limelight a lot. Springsteen's inactivity worked in Santelli's favor. I'm from New Jersey. You know, I grew up on the Jersey Shore. Um, I've known Bruce, probably met him in 1971 or 72. And, uh, and I knew, you know, in the early 80s, he had become a real big Woody Guthrie fan after he read Joe Klein's biography called Woody Guthrie, A Life. And he was free. I, I got lucky that he was available and he wanted to do this because he really believed in what Woody Guthrie stood for musically and politically, socially. Uh, you know, securing Bruce, everything else rolled downhill after that. No one turned us down. Bruce did it in part because Pete Seeger was going to be there as well. And of course, later on, as you know, you know, Bruce, uh, the Seeger sessions. With Springsteen and Pete Seeger on board, the Finale Tribute Concert rounded out a lineup that also featured Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Ani DeFranco, Billy Bragg, Amy Ray and Emily Selliers of the Indigo Girls, David Perner of Soul Asylum, and various others. The first American Music Masters was dubbed Hard Travelin', The Life and Legacy of Woody Guthrie, a 10-day celebration featuring everything from an exhibition of rare Guthrie family photographs and a film festival to a day-long educational conference. They were so new that they didn't really know much. You know, they kind (laughs) of came to me and said, you're the one who knows about Woody, so you do it. We'll provide the facility and we'll provide some staff to help, but basically... It, it all came out of our brains here, you know, everyone from all the different artists and the different ideas. We had a couple of different clubs that were doing different kinds of shows around town. And then when we invited the scholars, so to speak, uh, to sp- to do the conference, it was the first conference ever on Woody's work, which was very uh, interesting. And also in the sense that it showed how much how little people knew. That, that was kind of, for me, the surprise when we finally got the con- the conference together. And so there were the kind of the regulars, the people that had written books about Woody. So it, it was really exploring his legacy, and I was putting it together and then listening to the whole thing, and I went, wow, there's a lot more that a lot of people don't know, and that kind of set me off personally on the path that I've been on for the last 30 years, which is working with his unpublished lyrics and working with ideas and songs that people wouldn't expect in a way from you know, Woody Guthrie. It was all, it was crazy, but it was crazy good because it was just like this Pandora's box that somebody just opened up. And they, I don't think they knew what to expect. I don't think anybody knew what to expect. The finale tribute concert was set for September 29th at Severance Call, and it become one of the most anticipated music events in Cleveland history. And Springsteen's generosity helped make it happen. Bruce's involvement was so sincere, and it set me on a nice course with him over the years because he was quote-unquote famous, but still not at the peak of his fame at that point. He was just getting up there, and his crew came in, and they said, listen, we have a day off. We'll do the show for you. Lighting, stage manager, the whole setup was Bruce's setup. And they just had a day off. And they had like three truckloads with the crew and equipment. And they said, well, we're just going to be sitting around. We might as well do your show. Not only was Bruce free, but he said, you want my crew? You want my lights? You want my stage manager? You want my audio guy? Like everybody. And I've just never forgotten that. 
With the stage set, the artists gathered backstage at Severn Hall, with one legend in particular at the center of the scene. I remember being down like in the green room or whatever before the show, and so many people were just hovering around Pete as the elder statesman, you know, of the show. That was kind of cool just to see, you know, that the young people were like, oh my God, that's Pete Seeger. <laughs> that was really sweet to see the um, respect that he drew from everybody there. Ani DeFranco, relatively unknown at the time, was tasked with opening the show, remembers Norman. Ani DeFranco was virtually unknown, like a, a very indie type artist who was very DIY, too. I mean, she, I would get personal emails from Ani DeFranco saying, hey, I'm playing the Grog Shop this weekend, or hey, I'm playing Passing the Flats, or hey, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. She was on her own trying to stir up her career. So she comes out and she does this sort of almost whispering blues version of uh, Do Re Mi, which is a famous Guthrie song. And and then she sort of replaced the, the song's original sarcasm with this rage about the rich taking advantage of the poor. And, and, and it was just one of those, okay, this, well, get ready for the ride, ladies and gentlemen, because if we're starting with this kind of a, of a performance, uh, we know this is going to be a really, really high caliber thing. If you want a house or farm, don't do nobody no harm. Just take your vacation by the mountains or the sea. Don't sell that old cow for a car. Suggest you stay right where you are. You might want to take some advice from me. Because I read the one ads every day. The headlines in the papers always say, Ella, you ain't got and she just blew them out of the water she i i remember running at, when she was opening after her first song and i kind of ran to my stage managers and assistants and i said grab every artist and have them come up here in the wings and listen to this woman because she was so phenomenal and i remember thinking turning around and saying you're gonna have to top that <laughs> you know your opening act is phenomenal and then who, everyone who comes afterwards it's like you better be damn good because she just set the bar really really high Billy Bragg introduced two new songs he wrote to Guthrie lyrics for the upcoming Mermaid Avenue album. Ramblin' Jack Elliott performed Guthrie classics, Talkin' Dust Bowl Blues, and 1913 Massacre. Woody Guthrie's son, Arlo, delivered a mix of his songs along with his father's. Pete Seeger, meanwhile, would wow with a rendition of Guthrie's Hobo's Lullaby. Don't you worry about tomorrow Let the tomorrow come and go Tonight you're in a nice warm boxcar Safe from all that wind and snow Go to sleep, you weary hobo Of course, the night's main attraction was Springsteen, who kept things very traditional during his six-song set which opened with a fiery acoustic version of Guthrie's Tom Joad, followed by Blowing Down the Road and Oklahoma Hills with Joe Ely, Arlo Guthrie, and Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Well, but as I sit here today, so many miles I 
from the place I rode my pony through the draw. Where the oak and the blackjack trees that kiss the playful prairie breeze and the Oklahoma hills where I was born. It was pretty incredible. I mean, because the buildup to that was Springsteen himself going on stage, right, for his turn. And so he does this. He he had he just put out the Ghost of Tom Joad, right, and, and, and which is the main character in the John Steinbeck uh, novel. And you know, Woody and Pete are that era, you know, that that Depression era America. That's what inspired all of that 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 uh, activism and music. And so he opens with Guthrie's Tom Joad, you know. So that was just stunning. Then he teams up with Ely on. Uh, on Guthrie's going down the road, I ain't going to be treated this way, you know. And, and then he he did a 40-minute set, the longest of the evening. And he lightened the mood with you know some fun songs like Riding in My Car. And- I was going through this Guthrie songbook, and I was kind of excited because I said, hmm, automobiles. That's my business. <laughs> Mr. Guthrie. No disrespect, but that's my business. <laughs> and uh, then he did uh, Deportee, too, which is not a light song, but kind of a very cool song about immigration. Well, the crops are all in and the beaches are rotten. The oranges are falling near the creek, so don't. I'm flying them back to the Mexican border. Take all that money. The night concluded with an epic encore featuring all of the night's performers that Santelli says embodied the spirit of the music masters. Woody's music, uh, especially when you have Pete Seeger on stage, is all about collaboration and, and collective singing. So no question about it, there are photographs of everybody on stage singing This Land Is Your Land. Uh, I think we sang Hard Traveling as well. When everybody got out there, I can still get chill bumps um, just thinking about it, how great it was, because it was it was a celebration of not only American music camaraderie, but it put the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on a different level. The American Music Masters was a huge success for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, all the artists involved, and the Woody Guthrie Estate, which would go on to release two volumes of Mermaid Avenue and open the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 2013. For me, it was pivotal because, again, I was trying to connect the past with the future. And creating that weekend and it being a success... If it had flopped, I'd be out of a job, I suppose, <laughs> um, because it was so successful to see all these young artists like Ani DeFranco and the Indigo Girls next to the elders. Yeah, that became, for me, like, yeah, this is what I want to do. This is what I enjoy doing. It's not history. It's not old. It's not sepia-toned photographs. This is the present, and these are the people in the present that are we're passing the torch on. 
Santelli would remain with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame until 2000, when he became the CEO of the Experience Music Project in Seattle. Santelli would go on to become founding executive director of the Grammy Museum in 2017. Santelli has produced two Grammy-nominated historical albums for Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, and co-authored Woody Guthrie, Songs and Art, Words and Wisdom with Nora Guthrie in 2021. The Music Masters remained a fixture at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for 20 years, going on to celebrate annually the likes of Robert Johnson, Lead Belly, Aretha Franklin, Chuck Berry, The Rolling Stones, Johnny Cash, and more. This was the first big event that we did that uh, proved that a artist of Springsteen's caliber would come to Cleveland. You know, there was this thought that permeated through uh, the New York offices. Well, look, we'll, we'll have to do everything here in, in New York because no one wants to come to Cleveland. And, uh, you know, I'm from New York and New Jersey. I didn't believe that at all. Um, I thought what we had in Cleveland and what we could do in Cleveland, uh, the sky was the limit. I just thought we had to come up with the right programs and, and the right reason for doing those programs. And, you know, we had 500 people at a conference, you know, that never before happened, a music conference where you could sit there, you could hear, you could learn, you could be inspired, you could put Woody Guthrie's music in a brand new context, and then you can go to the concert that night and just hear it all being played out with your new, if you will, increased sophistication as the understanding of the music. That, to me, was what it was all about, you know, and that show was really... A, a turning point because it proved they would come to Cleveland and proved that we could put on first-class programs and, uh, and, and multi-day uh, celebrations of the music and its history and culture and do it in, in a way that I hope, I think, maybe made New York a little envious. Thank you for listening to this episode of CLE Rocks. For more, visit our pages on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and other major podcast platforms. And please leave a review. A special thanks to Bob Santelli and Nora Guthrie for their participation. I'm Troy L. Smith with Cleveland.com. Until next time. Oh.